0: as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. So let's stand as we read God's Word, Mark chapter thirteen. Uh, we're going to go through the whole chapter, but not today. So let's uh, look at verse number one. The Holy Spirit says through John Mark, and as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings!" And Jesus said to him, "Do you see these great buildings? There will not, there will be not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." And they will lead many astray, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Uh, This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Uh, These are but the beginning of the birth pains. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved, verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You may be seated. So, so how many of you are worried about the end of the world? How many of you are worried about your future. There's a recent survey that was done that found that three out of four young people aged 16 to 24 uh, were very anxious uh, over the future. Uh, there have been moments in history, especially in recent history, where there has been hysteria over the end of the world. Uh, if you think back to uh, the 1840s, uh, there was a thought that Jesus was gonna return in 1843. When he didn't come back in 1843, they said, it, no, it was 1844, We didn't come back in 1844. They continued on. And that's the Adventist movement uh, that has continued to this day. Um, You you have in 1938 a guy by the name of Orson Welles. Some of you remember him. (laughs) I don't, but maybe you do. Orson Welles got on the radio. This was before television. And uh, he had a radio broadcast, which was a dramatization of the end of the world, the war of the worlds. And people didn't have what we have. And this was kind of, it spooked everybody, scared everybody, and they thought it was real. They thought like it was the end of the world on the radio. In recent history, you remember Y2K? Now, if you're a middle schooler, you don't. If you're a high schooler, you don't. We're getting old, folks. We just are. But the the thought was, back in the olden days, kids, is that computers were going to melt down in year 2000. And so on December 31st, 1999, where they were partying like it was 1999, everybody thought the world was going to end. There was going to be a financial meltdown and nuclear warfare. Didn't happen. Then you have the Mayan calendar of 2012. Where the Mayan calendar said the world's going to end in 2012. So people were scared about that. Then you have in recent events, COVID-19, which people thought was going to be the pandemic to bend all pandemics. And we were just going to go into oblivion. Well, the one thing that if you'll notice, especially in recent history, there is big business in the end of the world. If you want to make a lot of money, tell people the end is coming and you need what you're They need what you're selling. Right. How many books have been written about the end of the world? I mean, some of you probably have that Left Behind series at home, all 16 books. You know that seven of the 16 books were New York Times bestsellers, made over $68 million plus in book sales. Remember the movie with Kirk Cameron and Nicolas Cage? There are zombie apocalypse shows like The Walking Dead and The Last of Us. I know what you heathens watch, so this is just, you know, I, listen, I, 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 know, I understand. There are doomsday preppers out there. They've got an underground bunker. They got more canned raviolis. I mean, they got canned raviolis for years. But we li- people live in constant fear. There, there's fear over terrorism. There's fear over nuclear war. There's fiscal cliffs. People are fearful of pandemics and climate change. But for believers, we're not to live in fear for the end of the world. We're to live in hope. We're to be like the great theological group R.E.M. said. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. (laughs) We don't have to live in fear. And so today, when we talk about the second coming and the end times, I don't want you to be afraid unless you don't know Jesus. And then you need to be very afraid because Jesus here is concluding his teaching on the temple He's in the temple. It's Tuesday. It's Temple Tuesday for Jesus. He is there. It's the last time he'll ever go into the temple. The temple in Jesus's day was the holiest place on earth. It was where heaven and earth overlapped. Jesus has just spent the past couple of days teaching that the temple is obsolete. is cursed and is rejected like the barren fig tree, if you remember that. So as Jesus and his disciples leave, they're making their way to Bethany, which is about two or three miles away. They're going to their friend Lazarus' house to stay. And as they're doing so, they're going down the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And there on top of the Mount of Olives, some 300 feet overlooking the city, Jesus gives what's called the Olivet Discourse. And there he talks about the future. He talked about the imminent future and then the ultimate future. And there, he talked about how we should live in light of these. Now, I want you to understand that Mark chapter 13 is extremely difficult. Uh, One theologian, a guy by the name of William Lane, said that in the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage that's more problematic than chapter 13. So we get to do that tonight, today. Yay us, and yay me. And these passages are difficult. And some of you, maybe if you're new to church, or you just kind of popped in today, you're gonna to be like, what in the world's going on here? But let me just tell you something. Just because passages in the Bible are difficult does not mean they're unimportant. It does not mean they're irrelevant. As a matter of fact, I believe that these passages are extremely relevant to you and me. And so what we're gonna learn is this is that on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is gonna predict about the imminent destruction of the temple and the ultimate consummation of the age. And he's gonna call believers to endure with hope. And so let's unpack this. I will not answer all your questions and I may make some of you mad, so let's go. Number one, the imminent destruction of the temple. Now this is gonna be important. It's gonna not maybe think you're, you maybe don't think it's gonna be important, but it's gonna be very important, so pay attention. He says in verses one and two that Jesus has come out, so they've left the temple. The disciples look at Jesus and wow, these are pretty awesome buildings. Like, have you ever been like in a huge downtown like New York City or L.A.? And you look at the buildings, like, wow. And so they're saying, what beautiful stones, what beautiful buildings. And so Jesus, like he understands that. And, and the, the temple was beautiful. I mean, the Herodian temple was twice as big as Solomon's temple. It was actually it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the, of, the, of, the, of the world. I mean, it was huge. Josephus, who was the historian of that day, said that from a distance, Herod's temple looked like a snow clad mountain. And it wasn't, and he says that what wasn't overlaid with gold was of the purest white. And he says, from a distance, and even as you got close, there was nothing that would not astound either mind or eye. And so it was the most magnificent building maybe in the world. And so Jesus makes a prediction. These guys are kind of like, this is an awesome building. And Jesus like, yeah, but it's not going to last. There's not going to be one stone upon each other. Now, in, in their minds, that seemed to be pretty impossible. Uh, now, we have the day of nuclear bombs and explosions, but that day, that wasn't there. The Temple Mount soared at that time, 160 feet tall, 13 stories, 40 feet, 40 feet thick walls. It hovered over the Kidron Valley. And no other building was like it. And in this time, no other prophet had ever predicted that this Building would come down. And so when Jesus is putting his reputation out on the line, putting his his integrity on the line, it says the temple is going to be destroyed. This would be an undeniable massive event. You couldn't cover it up. It would be like the White House exploding or the Capitol building being destroyed. You couldn't just say, Well, that was spiritual. No, Jesus is emphatic, the place is going. And so, verses three and four, he comes with the disciples. They're kind of walking with him, and they're now, like I said, 300 feet above the city. They get a city view. They see the Temple Mount. They see the the beauty of it and the splendor of it. And they're facing the west, so maybe they're getting like a sunset view. And so, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they got some questions. The question is: hey, when's this going to (laughs) happen? It's a big deal. Like if you knew that the White House and the Capitol building were gonna be destroyed and somebody told you this is gonna happen, you say, well, when's that gonna happen? Because I wanna make sure I'm out of D.C. when that happens. And so they're like, when's this gonna happen? What are the signs? And those, those questions are gonna be what the whole chapter is answering. Now, again, we ha- I could spend like a year on this text. I'm not gonna do that, but I'm gonna do it in one sermon, all right? Actually, two. There are at least six views when it comes to this, these verses. I'm not going to give you all six. I'm going to give you three main views. Number one, when it comes to understanding chapter 13, the first view is the historical view. Some scholars believe, and T-Rot being one of them, that all of chapter 13 is only about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Another view is the eschatological view in which scholars, and this is the popular view, is that everything in chapter 13 is about the second coming and the end of the world. The third view is a combination view in which says that these verses have both the destruction and the temple in there and also the second coming of Jesus. That is my view. It's the correct view, okay? (laughs) Just for you that are keeping score, my view is that verses one through 23 and verses 28 through 31 are about the temple and then verses 24 through 27 and 32 through 37 are about the second coming. You say, how do you know that? Why do you believe that? Because I read Bible, I read the Bible, and I think about it, and I also look at the context, but there's another verse in Matthew chapter 24, verse, 30, verse number three, and this is pretty much a parallel passage in which Matthew gives us the other question that Mark doesn't give us, and this is the question. This is what Peter, James, Andrew, and John ask. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So Mark doesn't put that specifically in there, but Matthew does. You're saying, well, that's, that's a contradiction. No, it's not a contradiction. It's just you have two different people with two different witness views. Mark's source is Peter, Matthew's is Matthew. And that's what they heard, and that's how they presented. It's not contradictory, it's complementary, And so that's why I believe what it is. Now, as we unpack these verses, let's, we'll look through verses four through 13. What Jesus does when he talks about the temple being destroyed is he's going to give, to begin with, some general instructions. These general instructions are the reality of what it means to live in a fallen, broken world. The disciples thought that when Jesus came, that he was going to bring in the messianic kingdom, that he was going to make Jerusalem great again, that there was going to be a chicken in every pot and a pot in every chicken, Everybody was going to be happy, Rome was going to be kicked out, everyone was going to be healthy, wealthy, and everything was going to be awesome. Well, Jesus says, no, it's not. He's gonna say, no, there's gonna be wars and earthquakes and famines and rumors of war and flood, floods and persecution. The government's gonna persecute you. Your family's gonna persecute you. And he says, listen, don't freak out. These are just the beginning of birth pains. So these were the Braxton Hicks contractions. <laughs> Let him who hears hear." It's not the real thing. And so he's saying to his disciples already, history is not going out of control because I am fully in control, even though things don't, you don't think they are. And as Jesus, if you read verses four through 13, what Jesus is describing is the table of contents for the book of Acts, Everything that took place to the disciples took place from about 30 AD to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. For that 40-year period, this is what Jesus is describing. From the resurrection of Jesus to the destruction of the temple, there were wars, there were floods, there were famines, there were earthquakes. Remember Pompeii and the volcanic explosion? There were massive, horrific persecution. For that 40-year window, thousands upon thousands of Christians were killed, And the reason they were killed is because they said Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. There were false messiahs like Thaddeus, Judas the Galilean, and an Egyptian. We don't know his name. We just call him the Egyptian who claimed to be liberators of Israel from Roman tyranny. Jesus says, "Don't, don't fall for that. Don't be so preoccupied reading the newspaper that you think, oh, here it is. Here it is. No, here's your real sign, verse 14. Verse 14 says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it not ought to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's verse 14. All the other stuff is Braxton Hicks. The real contractions is if you see something take place in the temple that shouldn't happen. Now, this happened before And the prophecy was in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now, again, some of you are like, what are you talking about? Just stay with me. Where Daniel prophesied that there would be an abomination that leads to desecration or desolation. And that was an unmistakable event that would take place in the temple. And so we know according to history that in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, a Roman ruler entered into the temple in Jerusalem, built a pagan altar on God's altar, and sacrificed a pig. I mean, they had a pig roast in the temple, it's a barbecue. And that was so blasphemous, so sacrilegious, that everybody knew that that was bad. And so Jesus is in this moment saying, Hey, you remember. Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C., you remember what he did in the temple? If you see something like that happening again, run. Don't pass go, don't collect $200, flee to the hills. And, and it would be, listen, in that day, what happened in the temple would be like in our day, what happened on September the 11th. It would be known, it would be a day of just complete uh, horror. And so Jesus says, when you see that sign, you need to Run. And so, what happened is this, is that in 66 AD, the Jewish wars began. Jesus died around 30 AD. 36 years later, the Jewish wars began. The Pax Romana ended. Rome started fighting. There was infighting. Fast forward to 70 AD, that a Roman general by the name of Titus is going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to... Do a five-month siege. So everything that Jesus describes in chapter 13 from verses 14 all the way to verse 23 is gonna be described in that five-month siege in which there would be horrific suffering in, Israel, in Jerusalem, there would be starvation, there would be, even be cannibalism. But before that took place in 70 AD, in 68 AD, something happened in the temple. And that is guys who were called Jewish zealots went into the temple, they weren't supposed to, offered a sacrifice, they weren't supposed to, and stood where they shouldn't have stood. And when that happened in 68 AD, everybody went, bing, 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 all the Christians. And so Eusebius, a fourth century church historian, said that in 68 and 69 AD, pretty much all the Christians left the city of Jerusalem and they went east to Jordan. And they went to a town called Pella, and I've actually been there. And they established a church, and most Christians were not killed by the Romans in 70 AD because they listened to the words of Jesus. Now, why does that matter? Because Jesus says in verse 31: Heaven and earth will pass away, my word will not pass away. You can take it to the bank. And so, Titus comes into town. Most of the Christians are gone. He enters into the temple. He offers a sacrifice. The soldiers worship Titus as emperor and he burns the temple down. And as he's watching the temple burn, it was so hot, the gold in the temple melted and it melted in the cracks of the stone. And so Titus says, we need to take that gold. And so he ordered every stone to be demolished. So that no stone was on top of another stone. You think that's important? Jesus said to the disciples that this, what I'm telling you about the temple, is going to happen in your lifetime. That a generation will not pass. The disciples, when they hear this, are in their early 20s. 40 years later, they are in their early 60s and Jesus's word was fulfilled in their lifetime. The destruction of the temple was the biggest event and is still to this day the biggest event in Jewish history. Judaism from that moment changed forever. Priest, There is no priesthood, there's rabbis. There are no temple in Jerusalem, there are synagogues. There are no sacrifices in the temple, it's just working for justice. And most Jews to this day are secular. Because when the temple ended and was destroyed, it was as if the end of the world had happened for the Jewish people. That there was something else that they needed. And Jesus is telling us all this as a foreshadowing of what is ultimately to come. That the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was a sneak preview of coming attractions. Now you say, Pastor, all right, information overload, too much information. Oh, I'm not giving you half. (laughs) What do I do with this? Jesus put his reputation on the line, predicting something that no one else predicted and it happened. You can trust Jesus. You can trust the words of Jesus. You can trust the promises of Jesus. So there you see the imminent destruction of the temple. So now we keep moving on to the ultimate consummation of the age. Remember, Jesus is answering two questions. Question one is, what's the sign of the temple's destruction? Question two is, what is the sign of your second coming? So he says in verse 24, this is where I think he talks about the second coming, he says in those days after the tribulation. So he begins to describe what the tribulation will look like, what that's going to look like prior to his coming, that Jesus is going to use prophetic language. He's going to talk about the sun darkening, the moon disappearing, the stars falling and the earth shaking. All of this is Old Testament prophetic language from Isaiah, Joel and Zachariah. And Isaiah, Joel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and even Daniel say that all of these are signs that the Son of Man, Jesus, would return in the clouds with great power and glory. That this is going to be a real-life event. It's not some false, symbolic, spiritual event, but a real event where Jesus will return. Now, think about this. The biblical description of the first coming is totally different than the biblical description of the second coming, in the, we love the first coming. Like we, like we have a holiday all about, it's all about the star and all about a baby in a manger. The second coming is about the stars falling out of the sky and all hell breaking loose. Two different things. Like you don't, that's not a part of your Christmas place, right? But yet, even though the first coming, we celebrate Christmas, we don't really talk a lot about the second coming or we talk too much about the second coming. But the second coming of Christ is a crucial doctrine of Christianity. There are 318 references about the second coming in 260 chapters in the New Testament. That is one reference for every 13 verses. Almost every moral command in the New Testament is grounded in the second coming. For every one prophecy of Jesus' first coming, there are eight prophecies of Jesus' second coming. Now, I don't know about how you grew up. Maybe you're brand new to church. Uh, maybe this is your first talk on the second coming. Maybe you grew up, like me, in a very fundamental church, and it wasn't very fun. <laughs> and maybe you're hearing this, and like, this sounds like mythology. This sounds like Greek mythology, or this sounds like religious fanaticism. And maybe, you, you know, you grew up with bad Christian movies. Like in the 70s, there was a movie called The Thief in the Night. You remember The Thief in the Night? It was really, really bad. Real, like, and it was basically, they just tried to scare you into becoming a Christian. Or these TV preachers, you, you saw them on TV, and they, they look crazy. They just look flat nuts. Hair is all disheveled. They got charts and graphs, and they have, like, the end is near. Normally, there are two extremes when it comes to second coming there's either one an unhealthy obsession, and that is that there's just so much specula- speculation, so many churches have been hijacked about a preoccupation over the second coming and they're just almost like wackadoodles. You know, listen, a lot of Uncle Eddies of Christianity, <laughs> Cousin Eddies, that's where they live, is in this area. There's a ton of end time cults over the hype and hysteria and the frenzy of it. You can manipulate a lot of people if you help them, if you make them believe the end of the world is coming. You drink the Kool-Aid, the proverbial Kool-Aid with that. That one extreme, is that's all you talk about, It's, it's an unhealthy obsession, that the second is an unthoughtful apathy. That the second coming of Christ, and maybe that's probably where a lot of us are maybe in the church today, is that it just seems almost irrelevant. And the reason why it seems irrelevant, like we don't really think about this, we don't really dive into this stuff, we don't really care about this stuff because we're so busy living our lives on earth now that we don't wanna think about this stuff. Like who wants to think of their funeral? Who wants to think of their life on earth being over? And and the reason why is because we love this world too much. Sometimes we're just so busy in the daily consumption of life that we don't care about the second coming or we don't pray for the second coming. We may not even want the second coming. You know, like when you were younger, oh, you know, Jesus, don't come back now. I want to get married. <laughs> or I want to go to college. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not ready for that. Come back later when I'm older and I have kind of ran the whole thing. And then, hey, I'm really old and dying of cancer. Hey, take me, you know. <laughs> you know, what do we do with this? Well, why, I, because on one hand, there's this unhealthy obsession which like people are doing rapture drills, like they're doing jumping jacks, like I'm getting ready, you know? Just in case he calls me, I'm ready, you know? To then just this apathy which we never think about, we never talk about, we never. what do we do with that? Well, Charles Stevens, a pastor, he's a commentator also, here's what he said, and I think it's so good, he says, how can we call this doctrine non-essential? It's in every chapter. Every command is tied to it. It keeps everything in the Christian life in balance because we're not looking for signs, but we're looking for the sun. We're not concerned so much with a program, but we're enamored with a person. We're not striving for a kingdom, but we're waiting for a king. We're not trying to Christianize the nation, but evangelize the world. That's why it's important because even though we may think it's so far off and so distant, The second coming of Christ is one of the grandest realities of all of of Christianity. Because we believe that Jesus is going to physically return to judge those who oppose him to reign as king and to make everything sad and untrue. He's going to restore and transform this fallen, broken world into a new world. He is going to right every wrong and he's going to usher his people back into the presence of God. Jesus in verse 26 says that when he comes, every eye will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. The word in could also be translated with the clouds. Now a lot of us, when we think about Jesus' return, we think of him like coming through the clouds. Or we think of him like surfing on the clouds, like he's coming in on a cloud surfboard. But why does it matter that it's in and with the clouds rather than on and through the clouds? Well one, that's what the word is, but two, It's important because when Jesus is saying is that when he returns, he's going to come with clouds. Clouds in the Old Testament were symbols of the presence of God. When he comes, Jesus is saying he's going to come with the glory clouds to restore the presence of God with his people. That he's going to be among his people and his people are going to be among him. And when Jesus returns, he is ushering in his people into his presence. Because in God's presence, there is no death. There's no disease or depression or despair or disaster. Everything you've ever longed for, everything you've ever wanted are wrapped up in his presence because the psalmist is in his presence is the fullness of joy. We were created by God, for God, and will only find true and lasting satisfaction in God. And so the return of Christ is the return of everything we've ever wanted but didn't know we could have. It's a return of God's presence forever. Have you ever heard the song, I Can Only Imagine? If you haven't, you've probably been living under a rock. (laughs) It's a song by Mercy Me. Bart Miller wrote it, he wrote it in 1999. He wrote it uh, in response to his dad who he lost to pancreatic cancer. He and his dad had a really bad relationship. Maybe you've seen the movie, I can only imagine. Uh, And his dad returned into his life, and Bart Miller's dad, who had a rekindled relationship, died uh, when Bart was a freshman in college. And his grandmother said to Bart, he says, I can only imagine what what your dad is experiencing in heaven. And, and Bart Millard said that that song, or that words I can only imagine just stuck in his head. He just couldn't get that word, those, those thoughts out of his head. And so he found comfort and hope in those words that, that he was imagining what it would be like to be in the presence of God forever. I can only imagine what it would be like. Surrounded by his glory. What will my heart sing? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or alone will I sing? All those thoughts come into your mind. And so the reason why that song was such a well-known, one of the best-selling Christian songs of all time, played at many, many funerals, is because there's a longing for all of us to want to be in the presence of God. See, that's the hope of Christianity. Christianity. See, hope is the absolute expectation of coming good based on the promises and character of God. It's our hope. See, we're not awaiting a politician to make everything right again. We're not looking for an economy and an economic boom to restore prosperity. We're we're not hoping for a moral movement to make everyone sane again. We are awaiting a king to return to bring us back into the presence of God forever. And Jesus in these verses is promising that pain and suffering that we know is normal in this broken world. It will not last forever. And therefore, the call of the message today is this, is to endure. He says in verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. There are 17 commands in chapter 13, and there are many things that we'll look at next week. But one here is that we are to endure, endure the pain, endure the suffering, endure the hurt and the heartache of this world, but do so with faith. To not quit or freak out, but keep showing up. Keep running the race. Don't stand back, but stand up. Keep sharing Jesus. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep loving people. Endure to the end. You know what most of us do? When things get tough, we take off. When people ask of us what we don't want to give, we... we, we, we Isolate ourselves from them. When, when things are painful, we run. Jesus says, don't run. I, I believe that you can endure almost anything if you know it won't be forever. I don't know what television shows your family watches or not, and I'm not going to judge you too much uh, about that. But one of the shows that, that I've watched off and on, some with my kids, is the show called Survivor. When you get towards the end of the season, they go into individual immunity. Immunity is that you can't get voted off if you win. Most of the individual immunity challenges are endurance challenges. And so, like, you you hold a ball on a a pole, or you stand on a beam, or you hold a grip. I mean, you know, you just hold on. I'm looking at these people like, there's no way. Like... Something's happened in my shoulders. I can't do this very long without it hurting. Anybody else like that? It stinks getting old. It just does. There was one particular endurance challenge that lasted 12 hours. 12 seconds here, okay? <laughs> but, but Jeff Prost, who's the host... He said something, I wrote it down, because listen, I'm always looking for stories. That's why some people are scared to hang out with me. <laughs> I'm afraid i will gonna be a sermon illustration. I'll change your name, all right? <laughs> Maybe I will. Here's what he says. He says, the key to endurance challenges is to stay focused. If you take your mind off the goal, you'll give up too easily. See, we can endure anything if we just keep our eyes on the goal, and the goal is Jesus, The is not heaven, it's not streets of gold or gates of pearl. It's not even being reunited with family members. The goal is Jesus. That's the goal. Cornelius Plantinga said that the second coming of Jesus Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. Maybe your child has just died of cancer. Maybe your marriage is about to be dissolved. Maybe your body is racked with pain. Whatever you're going through, Jesus is saying to you, there's a reason to hope, even in the midst of your darkest valley. Lift up your eyes, I am coming back and it might be today. See, the, pr- the promise of the second coming is that for believers, the good old days are always ahead of us. So you're saying, well, how can I trust this? How how, how do I know? How how can I trust what Jesus is saying here? well, here's how you trust. Look, everything Jesus has predicted to this point has come true. Think about that. He predicted the temple. No one else predicted that. With almost, not almost, with uncanny specificity. He even said pretty much when it would happen. He predicted that, that's a big prediction, and he he was right. It's historical fact. But there's a second prediction Jesus made, and it's also about a temple, but a different kind of temple. He made this prediction, this is in John chapter two. He says, destroy this temple, in three days I'll rise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple, and you will rise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He predicted another, didn't he? Didn't he predict another temple destruction? His body. And so that's why the Bible says that when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus spoken. And so he said that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and it happened. He said that he would be destroyed and rise from the dead and it happened. Think about this, you know when Jesus describes Judgment Day and the second coming, here's what he says. He says, on that day, the sun will be darkened. You know when, when Jesus is crucified in Mark chapter 15, we're gonna see this in a couple weeks, the Bible says that when Jesus was crucified, darkness came over the whole land. Jesus said that when he returns and judgment happens, the earth is gonna be shaken. Matthew's gospel tells us that when Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks split. See, when you read what Jesus says in Mark 13, about Judgment Day and the end of the world, and then you read what he says, Mark says in Mark 15 about the crucifixion, it seems like, it looks like, that what happened at the crucifixion is what's gonna happen on Judgment Day, and what happened on Judgment Day is what happened at the crucifixion. Why would they sound the same? Why was it that the crucifixion looked like Judgment Day? You know why? Because it was. Jesus on the cross received the ultimate Judgment Day that He was judged in my place. He was judged in your place. And those who trust in Him do not have to fear a future judgment day. But we get to look forward to being in the presence of God forever, not as our judge, but as our loving heavenly Father. Jesus faced the judge so you and I don't have to. And he took the fear of the second coming and the end of the world away from us. And he gives us the ability to endure with hope because he is our living hope. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how bad it is. Jesus says it's just birth pains. Joy is coming in the morning. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He will not last forever. Weeping may endure for the night. Joy comes in the morning. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus as Savior, then when he returns, you're gonna see him as judge. If you've never trusted him as your Savior, then when he returns, you better run. But even if you run, you can't hide. But I don't know about you, but I don't wanna face him as a judge. I wanna surrender to him as my savior. And if you've never done that, if you've never given your life to him, hey, Jesus's predictions have come true. He said the temple would be destroyed. It was destroyed. He said he would die and rise from the dead. He died and rose from the dead. He says he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. You can count on it. What you do with Jesus ultimately matters. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here in this room, you've never trusted Christ, you're watching online, you've never trusted Christ, or maybe you have trusted Christ, but you're just worried, I can't hold on, I can't endure. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Just trust in Jesus. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what I could not do. God, that you would do a supernatural work in hearts who do not know you as Savior. Thank you, Father, for my salvation. Thank you for the salvation of many others in this room. And God, I pray that you would save everyone today. And God, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you would right now, they pray and trust and ask you to forgive them of their sins and to save them. And Father, help us be a church that isn't obsessed, but isn't apathetic, but is one that's looking and longing for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing about our living hope. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at First, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.